We express our praise and gratitude to Allah Ta'ala. We seek blessings on the Prophet, peace be upon him. Uh, continuing, uh, what is Islam? Uh, we are on page 67, and we are in the paragraph that begins, it is in this broader historical context. Who wants to read? We can switch off. Okay. It is in this broader historical context... Oh, sorry. Broader historical context of the normalcy of wine consumption to the life ways of Muslims of the Balkans-Bengal complex that I should like to turn to three physical objects that are most instructive in helping us to diagnose the mutually constitutive relationship between wine and Islam in history. These are three inscribed wine vessels that belong to the Mughal Emperor Jahangir, a great... A gray jade wine cup made for Jahangir in 1607-08, a green jade wine cup made for him in 1613-14, and a white uh, jade wine jug that Jahangir uh, acquired that same year and that had once belonged to another gray imbiber, the Timurid astronomer-mathematician Sultan Ulug Beg. 1394-1449, whose great observatory and madrasa still stand in Samarkand, and whose father, Shahrukh, was a stern teetotaler. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the first of these objects, preserved today in the Brooklyn Museum in New York, bears on its lip the unambiguous identifying legend, the wine cup, Jami May, of the King of Age, Anno Secundo, and is blazoned with the following inscription. By order of his presence most high, the great Hakan, master of the kings of the world, manifestation of divine favors, pearl on the stairway of caliphal succession and emperorship, sun in the firmament of sultanate and world government, moon in the heavens of justice and felicity, Abul Muzaffar? Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, the Shah, son of Akbar, the Shah. Nuruddin Jahangir Muhammad, the Emperor, Muslim warrior. Okay, so. Whoa. Yeah, <coughs> that sounds like how you guys should refer to me. Anyway, <laughs> so, so Jahangir, do you guys know Joda Akbar, that movie? Yeah. The Bollywood movie? Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I do. Yeah, so Jahangir is the son of Joda and Akbar. Oh. Yeah. So, but I mean, that's beside the point. So he was this, this, uh, this prominent Mongol leader in the 1600s. And so, what are we saying here? That we have. Uh, these uh, these wine jugs, wine cups, and then on top of that, uh, like look at what it says. Okay, it's all this religious language. You know, by order of his uh, high, his presence, Most High, the Great Khan, Master of the Kings of the World, manifestation of divine favors, pearl on the stairway of caliphal succession and emperorship. Like this is this is I think how you should start referring to me. Yeah. <laughs> Sun in the firmament of the sultanate and world government. Moon in the heavens of justice and felicity. Okay, if you just call me that, that'll be sufficient. Yeah. Okay. Abu Muzaffar, the Shah, son of Akbar, the Shah, Nuruddin, Jahangir, Muhammad, the emperor, Muslim warrior. It's all Muslim, 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 Muslim stuff, right? So it's not like it's separate from, from his Islam. Again, repeating the point that this seems to be much more common, if not exclusively common, this type of mixture of Islam and things like drinking, it seems to be among the elite, the royalty. But that's how we often study history. Okay, let's continue. 
<clears throat> the inscription on the green jade wine cup of 1613-1614, preserved today in the Victoria and Albert Museum, reads, By the world-seizing, Jahangir, emperor, the world found order. From the radiance of his justice, the age was filled with light. From the reflection of the spinel-colored wine, may the jasper wine cup be forever like a ruby. Mm-hmm. So again, you know, there's this, this religious and gigantic... Uh, I don't want to say undertones, but these are like overtones. <coughs> and again, you're more than welcome to start referring to me as from the radiance of his justice, the age was filled with light. Okay. Alright, continue. The inscription that Jahangir had carved into the lip of the wine jar that had once belonged to Ulug Beg, preserved today in the Gulbenkian collection in, Lipsen, in Lisbon, <coughs> see figure one, reads, Look at this. Um, God is the most great, Allahu Akbar, the king of the seven lands, the emperor of emperors who spreads justice, the knower of the signs, real and metaphorical. Abul Muzaffar, Nuruddin Jahangir, the king, son of Akbar, the king, righteous warrior. Okay, so look at how far this one goes. This one even says Allahu Akbar on a wine jug. Wow. Right? I think that alone would probably <coughs> offend the vast majority of the Muslim world. Right? Mm-hmm. But... This was the the Mughal emperor. Okay, let's continue. To the the limited extent that wine cups are read as objects related to rulership in Islamic history, the tendency is to understand them as merely literally gestures towards the pre-Islamic image of the world divining wine cup of K. Khursaw, Khursaw, the mythic Iranian king, <clears throat> commemorated in Shahnama, which also came to be associated with another mythic Iranian king, Jamshid, remembered as the first winemaker, as the Jami Jam. The texts inscribed on the wine cups of Jahangir, however, go well beyond this pre-Islamic value to articulate a conception of legitimate rulership <clears throat> and a distinctively Islamic hermeneutic. hermeneutic. A statement of legitimate rulership, it should be added, which is here being made by the political and social order that ruled over a larger population of Muslims than any other on the planet. It is striking that the third inscription begins with the fundamental Islamic declaration, Allahu Akbar, God is most great. The same glorification of God also appears four times on another wine vessel made for Jahangir in 1618-1619. Okay, so... (laughs) So yeah, at the one hand, <coughs> you have this, and then he's making the point that it was a, a gigant, a gigantic population that the Mughals were ruling over, right? And so there's always the question of legitimate leadership, legitimate rulership. How do you get legitimacy? And at the end of the day, it basically means that you know people are not successfully revolting over you or revolting against you. Mm-hmm. Um, um, but what often is understood that if people are not revolting then they're accepting you as a leader. Okay. That's, I mean, that's how this stuff is commonly interpreted. But you look like you're processing something. Can I say something? Yeah. Well, I'm just thinking about, like, with Trump. Like, people might look back on our actions now and be like, okay, they had a march, but, like, yeah. they're not revolting against him. Yeah, exactly. Right. And so, so that becomes one of the questions. So one issue is basically that, all right, just because the emperor printed this on the jug, um... Does that make it legitimate Islamically? Um, I think no, right? And then, and then another issue, which has just slipped my mind. Let me just uh, skim through this again. Um, oh yeah. Oh, so his father is Akbar, 
and I forgot what Akbar's name was. I want to say it was Jalaluddin. But uh, Akbar was a super controversial figure who's often revered uh, in, in the West, but in many, many Muslim communities, he's, he's looked at as very controversial because he developed a, a religious outlook called Dina Ilahi, so the religion of God. And the idea was that all the religions of the world are all worshiping God, and they're all legitimate and such. And, sorry? Sounds very much like Baha'i, right, in some of the aspects of Baha'i. And then, and then on top of that, uh, it's understood, or it's assumed that part of the reason he was saying that was so that he could marry, you know, women who are outside of the people of the book, right? So the story of Joda Akbar, Joda, uh, she's Hindu, right? And so in Mughal literature, she converts to Islam, and her name becomes Maryam something, um, but that could be just, you know, we call it hagiography, meaning it could be just history rewritten just to fulfill their, their ideology. And so the point is that, um, that I think the author could have used Akbar as an example to speak of someone who is doing something that is not being revolted against, but would be considered to be outside of, of the, the bounds of Islam. Mm. Yeah. And I think it's Akbar who also spoke of himself as like the leader of the next millennium of Islam. So the Prophet, peace be upon him, was the leader in this outlook of the first millennium, and then Akbar uh, sees himself as the second millennium. Mm. So, so, I mean, as we're going through this, I think that's one of the, the, the issues, that just because we find this uh, among Muslims and it seems to be accepted, mm -hmm. um, Number one, doesn't mean that it's uh, actually accepted in those times, right? I mean, if the ruler is doing it. Right. Um, but yeah, let's keep exploring. Thus, the wine vessels of the great Mughal declare categorically his fealty to the god of Islam. The wine cup of 1607-1608 expressly links Jahangir's rule to the Khilafat, or visigerency. Nice. That is, at the very least, to the caliphal succession to the, uh, to the Prophet Muhammad, if not to the viceregency on earth to God himself. Two of the objects characterize Jahangir as Ghazi, as a warrior who fights for the community of Muslims and is ready to lay down his life in the way of Islam, for which reason I have rendered the word as Muslim warrior. A self-designation that invariably invariably appears on the coins minted by the Mughal emperors. The primary terms in which the emperor is constituted and presented are by the fulfillment of the political function of giver of justice and order, which are significantly the qualities emphasized and reiterated as definitive of legitimate rulership by Tusi in his ethics, the book that the historian Muzaffar Alam... Oh, we're just on roll Muzaffar Alam. Muzaffar Alam, he teaches at UFC. Yeah. has um, <clears throat> shown to be has shown to have been the foundational text for Mughal political thought. So another way to frame this, okay, so I'm emphasizing the fact that this is these are practices you find among the elite. Okay. <clears throat> but it goes on to the question of defining, all right, well, whose Islam is the more legitimate Islam? I mean, uh, we would say from text that, okay, this is not legitimate. Uh, but in the society... Uh, uh, in the, how do we put this? In a royal society, one of the differences between our presidential system is that part of the theory of our presidential system is that the president is basically one among many of us, right? And, and so the president's one of us. 
in this royalty system, they're looked at as a very different class of people, right? Mm -hmm. um, which for a lot of people then means that, uh, okay, what's okay for them is not okay for us, but it may be okay for them. Yeah. Again, uh, I think in terms of Islam textually, that's very hard to, hard to defend, but in terms of how people imagined their Islam in those eras, I'm basically saying that right now in our era today, which is an era of democracy, which means we, we uh, have a stake or a say in how society is run, uh, we get very critical of, of you know, Muslim leaders who seem to be falling short of what is proper Muslim practice. Mm -hmm. But you know, I made the point, I think, yesterday that I don't know how many in those societies people feel that way. Right? I think many people do, but I think also many people don't. Right. Um, but in this society, um, it could be that there are some people who are cursing the, the kings as this insult to Islam, or they're just saying, yeah, this is how, this is how Islam is, this is how life works. <clears throat> and again, the example to think about is, you know, the, the proliferation of photography in our era, right? Using the hadith that he cited uh, a couple of readings ago. Yeah. Okay, continue. These defining... Oh, but I should also say that, okay... Photography does not compare to alcohol, mm. right, or to wine in particular. Uh, <coughs> one is categorically haram, the other one is argued to be uh, prohibited. These defining attributes of the emperor in the world are likened by the inscription on the Victoria and Albert Museum wine cup to the attribute of uh, wine in the cup. Just as the world finds order and is illuminated by the justice of the emperor, the successor of the prophet, so is the wine cup illuminated by the radiance of wine. Mm -hmm. The emperor is wine, and he is also the caliph and ghazi. <laughs> Deeply evident in these inscriptions is the language of the epistemo epistemological apparatus of the philosophical Sufi amalgam. Thus, the emperor is, in clear Sufi terms, the manifestation, mezhar, mm -hmm. literally the locus of making visible, of divine favor. Also, in clear Sohrawardian idiom, his justice illuminates the world. Mm -hmm. Above all, he is the knower of the signs, real and metaphorical, that is, of the signs of Hakika and Majaz. Mm -hmm. He is, in other words, knower of the hierarchical uh, registers of higher and lower truth posited by Sufi and philosophical thought that this is a standard conceptualization and representation of Mughal political discourse. For example, Jahangir's grandfather, the Mughal emperor Humayun, was entitled Unifier of the Sovereignty of the Real True and of the Metaphorical. Mm -hmm. Jami Sultanate Haqiqi wa Majazi. That last part, metaphorical, could probably also be translated as miraculous. Right, so Unifier of the Sovereignty of the Real True and of the Miraculous. So, so what we're saying here is that the Mughal, the language that's used for the Mughal Sultan is that, is that he is very much the standard bearer, the defender, the warrior for Islam, right? And so I think it's probably fair to assume that many people, many of his subjects did look at him that way. He's our leader, right? And, and so back to the point of legitimacy, this is how the Ottoman sultans were also spoken of with these big lofty titles. And even if we go back all the way to, you know, a couple decades after the Prophet, peace be upon him, within a century after the Prophet, peace be upon him, the Umayyad leader 
uh, was referred to as the shadow of God on the earth. Right? Wow. So they were using these huge, huge titles that today in our, in our democratic uh, outlook we find that uh, laughable. But, you know, think back in their eras, this was, you know, part of the, part of the, the, the reputation of the kings. I think the yeah. fact that they don't have um, access to information like we readily do, I think that also has an effect too. Like they listen to the ruler. And not only is he just a ruler in terms of political power, but also religious. And mm -hmm. so they get all the information from him and they expect mm -hmm. him to be the smartest, I guess. Mm -hmm. So... I mean, that's probably part of it. Um, the, uh, what's interesting is a lot of these kings are illiterate uh, because, wow. you know, literacy wasn't taught to them either, oh. right? And so... So it was really like the religious class that had literacy. So the religious class would have literacy, and the king would have his particular council of religious scholars who in some eras would push back, but in many areas to sign off on whatever the king was doing, mm. Right. And, and so uh, we could say that, that, that uh, blame or credit uh, would often go to them. And again, we don't know what else is involved in being part of the religious class, like, you know, if your life is in danger or, or something, um, if you don't go along with the king. Mm. But, yeah. Well, it, it's not surprising because even now when your life isn't in danger per se with, like, all the Republicans who are just going along with yeah. things that Trump is doing, it's yeah. like, no, or just the other day, his conference where they went around the conference table and were like, "Thank you so much! Like, what a beautiful blessing!" This that is exactly was, it. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, in, in all seriousness, we're literally watching, um, you know, America turn into a monarchy, right, or at least a dictatorship. Um, I mean, don't be surprised at all if uh, I mean this happened with the Romans that you know they ended their democracy when when you know the threats were becoming too great, and so that's when. The person had to become essentially, in our language, Caesar, um, became emperor, and don't be surprised if that's what we're seeing in our society right now. It really comes down to how hard, you know, through through the law, uh, things are being pushed back. But you I don't put anything beyond this person. Sorry. The I think who was it? Augustus was the first one who was like emperor. Yeah, probably. Yeah. And they were like, but his ti his official title was still like, it still had the facade of the mm. republic. Like, yeah. It didn't. Uh, Mm. When you, so he didn't like see he wasn't called emperor mm -hmm. you know and the senate still exists like those things were there but oh. he's considered historically like the first roman emperor mm -hmm. so, so like, it may be that maybe that trump is already emperor right i mean he is yeah i mean i mean considering he's putting his family in all these positions mm -hmm. and he's been successfully above the law in just about everything i mean the only thing where he hasn't been above the law is basically the muslim ban everything else He's been above the law. It's just, I, like, more shocking than that is just how, like, maybe some do find him charismatic, but it's, like, it's just less than what I would have thought. Yeah. Like, I thought the actor would be, like, more glamorous or beautiful uh, or charismatic. Obama was that one, right? Yeah. Obama was a super charismatic one, right? And in a different way, George W. Bush was a super charismatic mm -hmm. one, right? Yeah. But this guy, he knows the exact language to speak, right? I mean, in a different way, he's very charismatic. I mean, many people find him offensive in ways that they won't find Bush or Obama offensive. But he, uh, uh, he knows exactly how to present himself as, like, the ultimate American. You know, I'm this blue-collar billionaire. And our American way is we're going to behave whatever way you want. You know, I'm not all polished like all the, those rich people. He does have, like, a, 
He does carry a certain gangsterness with him. Yeah. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, he's like a mafia guy. Yeah. Like the way he conducts But, like, business. there's a part, like, but that that's appealing. That's like, true. Mm-hmm. There's, like, you know what I mean? Like, like he called Guthrie a terrorist, and then he's like, here's $12 million. Yeah, exactly. Like, right? <laughs> like, you have to have some moxie to do something yeah. like that. Like, uh-huh. <laughs> And so, this is, uh, I mean, yeah, it could be that, you know, the uh, place has already become an empire. Or he, we already have an emperor, um, or at the very least, we're watching it come out of the open. Who knows? Okay, continue. The economy with which the wine vessels of Jahangir invoke condense and reify a complex language of conceptualization, of meaning of existence, and of political order can only be read as eloquent testimony of the profound and reflexive degree to which the cons- consciousness of the people and the society in which these statements were made much must itself have been inscribed with and cognizant of this complex of meaning. Yeah, that was a really complex uh, <laughs> sentence. Anybody want to try to translate? The economy with which the wine vessels of Jihangir invoke, uh, what would be a different word than economy? The universe? Okay. Uh, or the outlook? Condense and reify a complex language of conceptualization of meaning of existence. So what, they, what are they doing? These things that are on the wine vessels are speaking to a particular outlook. A, sp- a particular conceptualization of the world, mm-hmm. okay? Um, uh, a meaning of existence and of political order can only be read as eloquent testimony of the profound and re- reflexive degree to which the consciousness of the people and society in which these statements were made uh, must itself have been inscribed with the cognizant uh, of this complex of meaning. Okay, use the word complex quite a few times. So essentially, it sounds like what he's saying in simple English is that he wasn't doing this in isolation, okay? That he is actually reflecting what is the uh, what was in the era of the time. Mm-hmm. That's what he. It sounds like he's arguing. So it's not like, you know, even though you know, I keep emphasizing this is royalty. Uh, it seems like Shahab Ahmad is saying that okay, even if it is royalty, uh, it's not like they're doing it uh, um, and offending the masses. This is the outlook of yeah, Islam in the time. You know, when you think about something like wine, like you also have somebody making it. Like, it's yeah. not just a simple yeah. thing, it's, it's, like, yeah. there has to be point. a whole, so it has to be a norm to the level where, like, it can be sustained, produced, uh-huh. like. And so then the subjects will be the ones who are putting it in his in his cup and everything. Right. I mean, a, a way to think about it, uh, again, referring to people 500 years from now looking back at us today, I think one of the questions they'll be looking at is uh, our relationship to the nation state. Right? So for most of Islamic history, almost the entirety of Islamic history, there's a direct relationship between Islam and power. Okay? And it's a new phenomenon in Islamic history where you have this mass migration of people from Muslim-majority countries to Muslim-minority countries. And uh, it seems in most of these cases, except for the cases of terrorist acts, it seems that in most of these cases, you know, the Muslims are perfectly fine with, you know, with the, the leadership that's going on, right? or the system you know, that, that's present. And so that's what people 500 years from now are going to say, you know, that in this particular era, you know, uh, Muslims were perfectly fine with reducing their Islam to just, you know, prayers and costumes and such, you know, mm-hmm. that they did not, in, in many of these countries, you know, feel the need to establish some Muslim polity. You know? uh, I think that's, uh, that'd be uh, something analogous to this in the sense that this is their outlook at the time, that we're interpreting. And so people look at our world today and say this is how the Muslims are 
uh, you know, practicing their Islam, which I think is still true of the vast majority of Muslims in America. What's still true? Okay, so here we are. We're in we're in this democracy system, and you know, you know, uh, what we should do is work within the system to have Muslim whatever. Oh yeah. You know, but it's essentially legitimizing the right, system. Right, but this yeah. I remember another scholar in Chicago. He was talking about how like if you sort of pull the Muslim world, he's like, they would all, if, and ask them where they'd want to live, he's like, ev- most people would choose a Western country. Yeah, absolutely. Too, right? Like, yeah. it's not really a question. Like, you, that's where you want to go uh-huh. and live. And, yeah. Okay, let's continue. The language of the wine vessels is, in other words, both commonplace and normative. So that's it. That's his yeah. key point that he's arguing. Yeah. Indeed, it would appear that the wine vessels of the Mughal Emperor are Islamic wine vessels in that they inscribe themselves with a meaning that is constructed and expressed squarely in terms of and by relation to reference and values that issue blatantly from Islamic hermeneutics. That is, hermeneutics addressed to the meaning of the Muhammadan revelation. And in inscribing themselves with Islam, these objects also inscribe Islam. That is mm-hmm. by saying we are meaningful in terms of Islam mm-hmm. or we are Islamically meaningful. Yeah. The wine vessels, in turn, stake a claim to construction to constructing the meaning of Islam. Um, two questions. One, I looked up hermeneutics in my online yeah. dictionary. I couldn't. I didn't understand. It's basically thing. scriptural interpretation. Yeah. And is that last sentence saying like the whole kind of like? Chicken or the egg being culture or Islam, like you can't sep- like eventually they become the same thing. Yeah, I think okay. that's uh, very much what he's saying. Yeah, that um, they're inscribing themselves with Islam; they thus become Islam, and so the message is, this is Islam. Yeah, I think a lot of times, a lot of the words he uses, he seems to push the boundaries of the meanings of these words, and I guess it kind of fits in terms of this book is really, you know, looking at the boundaries of what Islam is. Further illustrative of this dynamic is the fact that Jahangir minted several coins bearing an image of him holding a wine cup. <laughs> oh, that's, uh, that. Oh. Imagine just, like, that's pretty just, neat. like, putting yourself on coins. <laughs> yeah. That's a, I mean, You're, it's like, like I'm assuming, like, working yeah. towards that goal. So, it's yeah. Like, it's like when Theodore Roosevelt put himself, he was on Mount Rushmore, like, he was, like, just president or something. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay, he was that's president of the time? Yeah. I don't know if he was during the time, but he was, like, pretty recent, like... Wait, Theodore Roosevelt or Franklin? Theodore. Wait, who are the four presidents? Uh, Jefferson, Washington, Lincoln, Roosevelt? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Wow. Jefferson, Washington, yeah. Really? I thought Roosevelt was, uh, I thought the Mount Rushmore was later, no? No, no, it might have been later, right? Oh, but but my point is, but he was a contemporary, uh-huh. so he, it wasn't, like... It was like everyone else was like a founding father yeah, yeah. Lincoln, right? And freaking Theodore Roosevelt's up there. Like, yeah, and he's, he's probably like, yeah, what's the big deal? You know? I, I could see it. It's like somebody doing that with Obama today. Uh-huh. I could see that happening. Uh-huh. If we made Mount Rushmore today, it'd be like those three, but we put Obama in. And we yeah. probably wouldn't argue with it. Yeah, We'd yeah. be like, oh, yeah. yeah I'm a shell up there, too. <laughs> <laughs> but this is haram. It's like, it's like putting yourself... So, so, just reminding everyone, this is haram. Yeah. Or it's like putting a picture of yourself with like a pig next to it, like, Wait, like eating like a pig, you know? Oh yeah, yeah. If a pig next to it would not be haram, but uh, yeah, like eating a pig. Uh, probably not, but uh, yeah. But um, um, texted me an ass. So yeah, and so think about this. Then these are the coins that are that are uh, that everyone's are everyone's using. using. Yeah, <laughs> you know. And, but I mean, I, this I mean, this gives us also hints in terms of how society works. And, you know, one of the points that, that I've been suggesting is that, for the most part, p- 
people just go along with whatever it is that's happening. It is not in their consciousness to think, okay, is this right, is this wrong? It's more like they're focused on, you know, their day-to-day lives. And if coins have this, yeah, whatever, right? Yeah. yeah. And, I mean, proof of that is how do we live? I mean, how much are we doing about, you know, the, the global exploitation that our society is doing? But our money yeah. has, like, slave owners on them. Yeah. Oh, yeah, like, that's And true. we don't think yeah. twice about it. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly it. But it says liberty on it. <laughs> yeah. this this class well kind of all your classes but this class is like when you go to the eye doctor and he's like changing the little things yeah. and getting them more and more clear <laughs> or more blurry so anyway but uh but yeah i mean uh, so yeah you're correct this is haram right um and still uh this is part of people in their normal day-to-day lives and we're all guilty of it doesn't make it okay, but we're all literally guilty of this. Right. In this image, Jahangir holds a book in his other hand. One can only wonder which book. <laughs> what, which book do you think it is? It's the Quran. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this, on this thing we can't see. Yeah. You but can't see? It's like... I wouldn't be surprised. Knowing everything we learned about Muslims, like that's how they beat you, like Quran in one hand, wine glass in the other. Like. <sighs> so, so... Uh, uh, do you see the book in that? In that photo? It doesn't actually show. It's just like. Oh, it's like you can barely see it. Yeah, it's you can like barely a, make out that it's. Uh, yeah. So. It's right at the bottom. See his hands. His hands are holding something. Yeah. See his fingers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It could just be like paper or something. <laughs> I like how he threw in. One can only wonder which. <laughs> I hope that that like kept him up at night. No, it is. It's probably, it's probably like the Masonic manual or something like that. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Historically, there are two definitive public actions by which a ruler demonstrates a legitimate fact of his rule to his Muslim subjects. One, the sermon at the Friday congressional prayers is read in the name of the legitimate ruler. Mm-hmm. And two, the coin wow. of the realm, which is the currency for legal transaction, is minted in the name of the legitimate ruler. So, so yes, this is also uh, not uncommon in our history that there will be at some point some reverence, prayer, or whatever for the ruler in Shuma. So, uh, like, he'd be part of the Jamaqah, but, like, the way they talk about, like, the yeah. Sahaba, and then it'd be, like, the ruler. Yeah, or, at the very least, it's understood that this person is speaking in, sponsored, or patro- uh, sponsored by the ruler and in support of the ruler, oh. right? Okay, because, like, again, in our Islam in America... Nobody owns anything. Nobody owns Islam, right? You know, I can build a mosque right now anywhere and have whatever bogus theology and call it Islam. Nobody can do anything about it, right? But in most of the societies in our history and still in most of the Muslim world today, mm-hmm. the mosques are controlled by the government, right? So is this like Khutbah Carousel, like a very modern phenomenon? Say it again? The Khutbah like, Carousel? Yeah. yeah, it's totally modern. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, So, like, people, to go beyond that, like, people wouldn't critique cookbooks before. No. Like, they would just take whatever, if you, yeah. like, yeah, That would have been hard for you. Mm-hmm. It would have been really hard. I mean, I probably would have been executed. You know, you know, I'd not be sitting back there saying, that's gangster. <laughs> gangster. Right, you know, but, um, I mean, it's also, uh, what also is probably a modern thing is having these super long chutbas. Mm. Yeah. Right? The chutbah itself is probably something pretty short with some basic, basic lesson at the most. 
you know, that's that's what I'm trying to shift our our Jumas here to reminder of the prop, reminder of Allah, reminder of the Prophet peace and reminder of the day of judgment, like a paragraph, two paragraphs done. We'll still have a talk before that that has no Islamic value, except as a learning thing, but no religious, no worship value. Um, um, but uh, the point is that the uh, the Sultan's name will be there, and so now think. What is the Prophet, peace be upon him, saying? What is he advising as protection against the Dajjal? What is one of the, the prescriptions? You read Surah Al-Kahf before Juma, right? Oh. Because that, the, the, uh, um, like in our society, the, the member, the pulpit, I don't think is a seat of power. Okay? It's, uh, um, the power belongs to the people who run the masjid. And usually it's a board. In, a, in rare cases, you find it more common in, in black American mosques, uh, not as common in Arab and Desi mosques, um, that there'll be like one person who's like running the, the masjid, mm. right? Um, but in these eras, the, the imam who is leading Jummah is essentially an ambassador uh, of, the, of the sultan, okay, just in the realm of religious life. You know, when I was in Turkey, there was, uh, I think in the Hagia Sophia, there was like, they had a special section that, like, the sultan would pray in. Like, yeah, 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 the sultan yeah, would always have his room, own little place. Yeah. His own room, and it threw me off because yeah. I was By like... Himself? Yeah. Yeah, he, he had a special area, like, so everyone yeah, sat down, yeah. but he was, like, corded off on the side. Yeah. And it was, like, a little palace thing. And then, like, you Whoa. knew, like, you could tell, like, when things were going down historically, because it'd be, like, the Italians came in 1800 and built... I'm like, damn, like, that's when we just started giving up, like, you know, like... Yeah. But, but again, it was weird to me. Like, that, but that's royalty, right? You know, part of part of the psychology of royalty is you keep yourself separate from the people, and then when you bestow yourself on the people, people are all cheering for you and stuff like that. Again, in our approach, you see the president all day long, every single day, right? That's part of. He's on Twitter. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, this <laughs> one, yeah. So you know, that's part of the uh, idea of democracy. Again, he's just one of us. Um, it's civilian rule. But in that time, um, like remember we mentioned like these books, Mirrors for Princes, which was mm -hmm. advice rulers, and the advice would often be like you know, you have to present yourself to the masses as something that they would just revere, you know, in the way you wear your crown, in your your clothing and everything, your throne, and and people would literally think of the kings the way we think of celebrities, right? So think of a celebrity. So if a celebrity is making an appearance. I mean, I think it's exactly the same as what you'd see from a king, you know, in those eras. Do you what think? a miserable existence. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, no, the interesting thing to, is, they would probably look, at, they'd probably look at the same way, look at us the same way. Like, you guys have to run society? No, we don't want to have to run society. Well, yeah. yeah. It's a pretty bougie existence. Yeah, I mean, the, yeah, I mean, the Ottomans definitely knew how to live. The, the Ottomans? Mongols definitely knew how to live. Yeah. <laughs> they were, oh my God. But, like, so my other question is... Are these, I guess it's not Islam, like, what I'm trying to get at is, like, what defines Islamic seems to be what's normative at the time, uh -huh. right? So, would they, would people go on to see, like, uh, liberal democracy as Islamic? Yeah, that's probably, um, so people will look at us 500 years from now and say that, you know, in their Islam, they uh, completely justify having not a complete non-Muslim leadership over them. Yeah. And right. this, this non-Muslim leadership just, like, wreaking havoc upon the Muslim world. Yeah. 
Yeah. Or running it in its, I mean, pretty much running it. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. America kind of runs the mm-hmm. Muslim world. Yeah. yeah. And so that's how people are going to look at us. Yeah. Mm. Right, let's continue. They're going to listen to this conversation because it's recorded and put online. Yeah, <laughs> if, the cloud, if the cloud storage. Yeah. They'll be like, they knew. Yeah, exactly. They're like, these people knew. Yeah. They were self-aware. Yeah. <laughs> Jahangir's gold sovereign, another surviving example of which is the illustration that appears on the dusk jacket of this book, uh, thus publicly and statedly posits his wine cup at the semantic and symbolic center and apex of Islamic political order. Okay, so see what we're saying? So, the center <laughs> of Islam is the sultan, right, or is the Mughal emperor in these regions, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Did, I yep. had another question. Yeah. It's secondary. Did he... Like, would, did he call himself the leader of all Muslims, or did he, like, because there was still a sort of caliphate or something, right? Like, with the, with the Ottomans. That's a good question, because I think there was a relationship between the Ottomans and the Mughals. Yeah. Um, whereas the Ottomans specifically referred to themselves as a caliphate. Yeah. Right? Uh, I don't know that the Mughals referred to themselves as a caliphate. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. Okay. Yeah. I mean, and also, I mean, we're speaking of an era where travel is, is by land and sea. Yeah. So to go from Ottoman territory to Mughal territory, you know, today would be just jump on a plane for, for an hour, but back then, who knows? Yeah. You know? So, yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, what else were we saying? Uh, yeah, yeah, so, okay, so at that time, the, the emperor was the center of Islam. Um, in terms of the office of the emperor, in terms of the person, and all of that. Uh, what would you say in today's world? The center of Islam? Yeah. Maybe, not influ- like, we're talking about in our imagination, yeah. or, no, or like, influence. Oh, yeah. Those are Both. different questions. Both. That's a weird question. Not weird, I w- Man, I don't want to say the Saudis, but, yeah, like, for, but for a lot of people it is. But I think for a lot of people, though, for, yeah. the for a lot of people, uh, the king of Saudi Arabia is looked at not unlike what we see here. I also for think, a whole lot of people. I think, like, I guess you know, Scott, maybe more than fifty percent. Maybe. That's, yeah. Mm. Again, because we're conditioned with this type of rule, right? And we're conditioned with a very different type of Islam. But these are societies that have never had democracy. Yeah. You know, these are societies that, you know, I mean, what's actually funny is even though they never had democracies, the monarchies themselves are not more than like one hundred fifty years old. The Saudi monarchy yeah, is one hundred yeah. years old. Not yeah, even. Yeah. Before that, it was a bunch of tribal alliances. Really? Is that yeah. recent? Yeah. yeah. Those so, under, uh, Makkah and Medina were under Ottoman rule. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Meaning the British set up the monarchy. Yeah. You know? Mm-hmm. And they, they, they led the rebel. The British funded that That's whole Lawrence of Arabia. Lawrence of Arabia. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Battlefield 1. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And then, I mean, and so Iraq used to have a king. Egypt used to have a king. And I think both of them, at least the Iraqi king, was set up by the British. Mm-hmm. And I think the... The Egyptian king was set up by the British and then was replaced by the French with a, a dictator, right? This is all, this is all yeah. colonial, yeah. you know? But there's also Osman Danfodio. Yeah, Osman Danfodio in Sub-Saharan Africa is, is uh, very much an exception to a lot of this. So these so, yeah. emperors, like what influence did they get kind of planted in from? Like, if, like the kings currently or in recent history are like in the wake of colonialism or propped up because of that what about like these emperors usually it's usually the the tribe or army that won okay yeah. that's uh, basically it yeah. 
So think of India historically as a bunch of little tiny kingships. Mm -hmm. And then from Afghanistan, from your people, comes along these guys who then start conquering. And they conquer pretty much Central Asia and all of northern India. Just constantly and getting conquered. That's like yeah. Poland. Right <laughs> or like, yeah, and so that's, <laughs> that's, that's, just getting, yeah, that's, that's the Mughals, you know. But I would also say, like, maybe, like, the Mufti of Azhar, or Azhar, like, a lot of people... He is probably also him. the center of Islam for a lot of people, which yeah. then means which that CC is, uh, is the center of Islam for a whole mm. lot of people. Yeah, I mean, again, we, we are often looking through this lens yeah. that we can tell the good from the bad and all that stuff, which may or may not be accurate, but for the rest of the world, it's very, very different. But I think, I also think Sufis have their own center. Like, so the, their center will be, um, you know, like the, the sheikh at the top. Yeah. yeah. That's what I was going to say when you, when you read the part about, like, beginning... Uh, an event or a khutbah in like the name of this other person like at the Sufi mm. gatherings it's always like a prayer for that mm -hmm. shaykh first before anything else you know that's what we should probably start doing that yeah. the, the moon in the sky of justice and <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah I don't know if you saw the titles like go back at, go back at like a page you'll see some of the fantastic titles but uh, okay so then let's make it smaller uh, in terms of Islam in terms of Islam in America what would you say would be? What would you say, or who would you say would be the center of Islam in America? To be honest, like white converts, like Sheikh Hamza Yusuf. So for, for a lot of people, it'll be Hamza Yusuf, but yeah, less so than like ten years ago, twenty years ago. Uh, Hamza Yusuf had a much higher status. Um, who else, or what else? Islam in like celebrities? No, no, no. I'm saying, who or what is the center of Islam in America? I still think like I, I, I still think uh, Farrakhan has a lot of. I think he, he still has a lot of influence in a lot of circles. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and so think about how we're framing censure. So this this would be the institution or the person that people pay attention to and more often than not listen to. Right. This person. Do Muslims the, listen to anyone? Yeah, I mean that could be the answer. We could, the answer could be yeah. that there is just no center, right? Oh. And that could be uh, one explanation for a lot of the chaos. That's an explanation a lot of people give. Could it be Trump? What do you think? Because he's like. I mean, do like he might he effectively become. Opposition to something. Yeah, I mean, it might be that the president of the United States winds up being the center of Islam. Um, just I think, but I, yeah. I think that that's true because the president controls the narrative, right? Yes. So, like under under George W. Bush, it was this whole anti-terror thing. Yeah. It was just, and then like under Obama, it was this whole like a very patronizing, like oh, you guys yeah. have to reform. But I think especially under Obama, he was very much looked at like the center right. of Islam. To the right, point and where he people was like, accused him of being a Muslim. Yeah, exactly. Like, like, even I was like, waiting for him in the final speech, his final speech that was in the corner place. I was like, do it. Just say it. Say it. Ashhadu Allah. Yeah. If he dropped that, yeah. I don't know what I would do. That would like be, we'd all be in immediate danger. Like, <laughs> yeah, like it would not be good. Yeah, it would. He should keep his Islam secret. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I also, like, what, what point was I going to make? I forgot. Oh, because, no, under Obama, I do feel like, at least with the Sunni community, mm -hmm. you know, it, it it seemed to be, like, people got more inclusive of, like, Ahmadiyya's or, like, mm -hmm. Shias. Like, there's been a more openness. But that, I don't think it's because they band together. I think it's because Obama... 
promoted sort of an interfaith inclusionary rhetoric, right? Mm -hmm. And like Muslims wanted to be at that seat. They mm -hmm. wanted to be with Obama. So because of that, I think you saw more openness. Mm -hmm. That's why I feel like Trump would be the center right now because in the opposite way, where like he's pushing everybody to kind of put aside their differences and get together against yeah. him. So it's yeah. like, it works in that, yeah. yeah. What do you think the answer is? I don't know. I mean, it might just be the, the president of the United States. So. Oh. Uh, okay, then let's make it even smaller. What about the center of Islam in Chicago? There is none. No. There's no center of Islam. <laughs> MCC. Yeah. I mean, it might be the council of Islamic organizations. Yeah. Right. Do but, you think for like a certain generation? Uh, yeah, I think a certain generation and crowd. Like, can you tell me who is the uh, um, who is the the chair of the Council of Islamic Organizations the, right the now? The, uh, no, wait. This guy's through the uncle still at the chair. No, I have no idea. Well, he was the fifty. Uh, it's um, Doctor uh, Basan Osman Never heard um, Never. from Burridge. Do you know who the executive director is? No. No, Gregory Mitchell. Okay, yeah. So. Is he convert? Yeah, yeah. Uh, he he converted. He changed his name from you know Abdullah Malik to Gregory Mitchell. <laughs> yeah. No, well, so. I think the famous people in Chicago would be like probably Osama Kanan. Yeah, that's what I was He's thinking. not even from here. But yeah. that's yeah, also, exactly. and then, I uh, still, like having moved to the suburbs after undergrad, like no one even knows about Tutley yeah. out there. Even yeah. like the young people. Yeah, I don't yeah. see why they would though. Like it's, it is yeah. sort of like a hip, like. And yeah. yeah, you have to like dress really yeah. fancy and like wear shirts like that. Like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> this is just how I dressed in the masjid. <laughs> Mashallah, you're like an ill Muslim. Mashallah, yeah. So, it might be easier to define in different silos in Chicago. So, who would be the center of Islam in Bridgeview? That's an easy one. Uh, Sheikh Jamal, Sheikh Jamal, right? In Orland Park, it would be Sheikh Gifa, right? Uh, Villa Park would be the masjid itself, uh, but I don't think there's a person oh, who would be the yeah. center of Islam, right? Uh, oh, but, no, that's true. Side would be like... No, 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 no. 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 holds no cloud. No, no zero. He's yeah. like secretly upholding the community. <laughs> that no. He right. just keeps all the people on edge, like me, like in orbit. You know, like yeah. kind of like, like the gravitational like, like, Kind of like, and you know what else is in the orbit? The moon. Oh, <laughs> and the sun. Okay, all right, let's continue. Where am I? Oh, is it the last question? Clearly for Jahangir, his wine cup cohered with his conceptualization of what is Islam. Does our own conceptualization of Islam allow us to understand this coherence? Mm -hmm. uh, what is the footnote? Um, so it's a quote from Winf Wilfred Cantwell Smith, who was a, a scholar of Islam. He died, I want to say, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. And, he's, and the quote is, It is what the Hindu is able to see by being a Hindu that is significant. Until we can see it too, we have not come to grips with the religious quality of his life. So basically asking, you know, what did the Muslims see at that time as Islam? Right. And so explore that. Like, taking everything into account, what do you see as Islam? Right. Is it also saying in a way not to judge? Like, until you understand... How, how a Hindu has been a Hindu or a Muslim has been a Hindu during that time, just everything that happened during that time, you can't really... I mean, I'd say judge not in the sense of, like, a value judgment, but uh, in terms of analysis. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's just crazy that, like, a thousand years from now, if we're also here, like, they'll have access to just the, like, layperson's thoughts about they, all they, this on they Facebook. They won't necessarily. 
Why? Why? That's. I mean, you're assuming like our society is going to be preserved. Like that's yeah. that's such a huge assumption. No, right? but I mean, that's why I said so, if we're all yeah. like, the and then like data itself, like. No, but I mean, it would be fair to assume that they'll have uh, methods of archaeology, you know, that they'll be able to find some things. Yeah, they, right? I'm sure they'll find, but I think it'll be to the same extent we're able to find out. Oh really? No, no, but no, no, but I'm su I'm suggesting it would be more because you know in those eras you didn't have lay people saying things. We're writing things. Mm. Here we have everybody, right? We yeah. have Twitter, we have blogs, mind, we have if, Facebook. If it's like digital, it'll yeah. last like, you know, within a few lifetimes, but yeah. I just see it disintegrating. Like, no, I mean, that's uh, uh, even like yeah. in, the, in the film industry, this is one of the big issues that they're wrestling with. So like all movies are digital now, yeah. but the problem is that the technology changes, so how do you preserve, mm. you know, these movies? And yeah. so movies are going to get lost. Yeah. Um, oh, I mean, we've already lost have methods. Sorry. We've lost films before, you know? I mean, so at least, like, the, they'd be lost because of disintegration of the film yeah. or the fire, but the technology hasn't changed. The technology yeah. was around for 100 years. Yeah. Now, you know, something that's a digital format, you know, 10 years from now will probably not work. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So. All right. Any other thoughts? This was a heavy <laughs> discussion today. Uh-huh. Yeah, it wasn't much, but it was pretty intense. All right, so we'll continue next time with the paragraph in addressing the question. What page is that? 71. 71, all right. Subhanakallahumma bihamdika, nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta, nasafiru kanatu bilaik wa akhiri da'wana, and alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen.